Hello, and welcome back to A Sort of Young Person's Guide to Prog Rock. I am your host, Ian Prize. So, in this episode, we introduce, undoubtedly, the most popular band Prog Rock ever spawned, Pink Floyd. And we go back to their origins, not as the wall-smashing, wish-you-were-hearing rock gods they became, but young students in Sgt. Pepper's London. So today, Pink Floyd, Piper at the Gates of Dawn. So today we are joining Pink Floyd, at this point comprised of bassist Roger Waters, drummer Nick Mason, keyboardist Rick Wright, and singer, songwriter, and guitarist Sid Barrett. They have just met in a polytechnic school in London, and as many young kids did in this era, started jamming to the blues. Pink Floyd is thus named after bluesmen Floyd Council and Pink Anderson. They started to make a name for themselves playing space rock, complete with psychedelic light shows in the burgeoning London psychedelic club scene. In the mad enthusiasm for psychedelic rock bands, Pink Floyd were signed and produced two hit singles, Arnold Lane and CMLE Play. They were then tasked with recording a full-length LP to be produced by Norman Smith. In the studio, they created unusually arranged versions of Sid Barrett's whimsical English vignettes, as evidenced by its name, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, which is a chapter in The Wind in the Willows. They also included two long space jams, Interstellar Overdrive and Astronomy Domine, pointing to Pink Floyd's live club bona fides. This album, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, was a minor hit, setting them up for modest success in the near term. But this album would walk a line between strange and catchy, which would be a blend that Pink Floyd would ride all the way to the stratosphere. So, Pink Floyd, namely Dark Side of the Moon, is why I'm here. I'm assuming it's the reason a good proportion of you are here. It's the natural stepping stone from rock to progressive rock, and if you get deep enough into Pink Floyd, and you followed them all the way from Dark Side of the Moon through to the wall, the most obvious question is, well, what came before? I've always loved these songs, but preparing for this podcast, especially throwing it into contrast with Sgt. Pepper's, I've only come to realize what a unique talent early Sid Barrett Pink Floyd were. Piper is shrouded in legend because of the loss of Sid, but I've always tried to understand the album on its own terms as a joyful expression of psychedelic whimsy. So to get whimsical with me today, joining me again are Rufus Daw. How are we doing? Hey, I'm good. I'm good. Good to be here. And the piper at the gates of dawn himself, Edley Winks. How you doing, Ed? <laughs> Edley Winks as well. Um, yeah, doing good. Yeah, really happy about doing this one. So it's an album I really love and uh, a time in history I really love musically. So yeah, I'm, I'm pumped for this one. Fabulous. I guess I'll start with you, Rufus. How did you feel about this era of Pink Floyd? Was it an era you were familiar with? Um, no, so I think the era of Pink Floyd I'm most familiar with is the Roger Waters side of it. The classics. The, the classics, yeah. And so this was a, an experience for me, I think I would describe it as, okay. um, because I hadn't okay. really listened to early Pink Floyd. And I'll be upfront, I don't like it at all. I appreciate what they were doing at the time as well. And I think it was certainly at the forefront of music history and the progression of rock. But as a listening experience, 
in the modern day, even with the context and without the context of, of what they were doing at the time, it I don't find it enjoyable. That said, when you start to learn about the history, it does become really, really interesting about the dynamics of the band and what they were trying to achieve as well in quite a lot of adversity yep. um, at the time. So I think in a lot of ways it's great for that reason, but as a simple piece of music... Not your favourite. I, str- I struggled to gel with it, basically. Yep, that's that's perfectly reasonable. <laughs> so, Ed, how much of this era of Pink Floyd did you know about? So, yeah, I, I'm kind of the anti-Rufus on this one, because <laughs> this is... Um, you know, this is an album I've listened to quite a few times and it's actually been really nice to come back to because I think I was, I was quite a lot younger when I'd heard this and I was like first getting into it. And I, having learned a little bit more about, you know, the equipment of the time, because that's always my thing, you know, like I get obsessed with the, the fuzzy little dirt boxes that people use and I'm a gear nerd. So like I, I like listening to all this stuff from the 60s and like, oh, that's one of those... You know, that's that's Tom Bender, that's you know. Um so hearing oh yeah. I'm hearing the equipment shaping the music. Okay. In a way that I think maybe people wouldn't necessarily agree with me on you know, like you, you talk about anything to do with Sid Barrett, you start talking about mental health and yep. people start listening to stuff in the lyrics and you know, it's it's you're you're trying to assess whether you are listening to the decline of someone's yep. mind or whatever, but it's like I don't really see it that way. I actually hear hear a guy who's actually quite lucid. He's talking about very interesting things that he's been reading about that we'll probably get onto as we go through the tracks and stuff. But when it's playful and whimsical, it, it's like the music comes with that and it's all quite upbeat and it's very very English oh, to yeah. my Welsh ears. Yep. To my Welsh <laughs> yeah. ears. Like, yeah. you know, very like it's, it's very English. Um, and... It's it's very much in those particular types of songs that are like really upbeat that that happens. But in the darker sounds, I don't think they're due to someone having a mental decline. I think it's about the equipment, and I'll talk about that in more detail. But I think for me, what really makes this like a great album is the production, and the production is Norman Hurricane Smith, yeah, who did Rubber Soul. That was the first thing I was going to flag up on this. So Norman Smith was the producer, and uh, he worked as a technician for the Beatles, kind of during the Beatles, you know, big mid-60s era. And then I believe this was his first or one of his first jobs as a full producer. And he didn't really go on to do much of, I think, this level again. I don't think he had other credits this size again. Kind of like it or not like it, like it's maybe an acquired taste, maybe you never acquired the taste. There's a lot in there. I can't believe how much sound he packed into these songs. And I think that was one of those because the song structures are very simple. They come from that English nursery rhyme place. Most of them are basically nursery rhymes about gnomes named Grimble Grumble and a cat named Lucifer Sam and stuff like that. And then on top of that, it's like harpsichords and delay effects and wood blocks whizzing left and right all over the place until we get to jug band blues which is the very very last song we'll talk about and that's kind of sid barrett's swan song with pink floyd outside of that you never really get the sense of any real mental health issues within the lyrics but the absolutely all over the place nature of the songs their construction and kind of their yeah their overall sound 
I don't know. Like, I guess it just has the feeling of a man who's looking beyond this reality, I'll say, to put it nicely. Yeah. Well, that, that chaos wasn't necessarily all Sid as well. So um, Nick Mason said in an interview that this recording studio had various musical instruments that had been loaned in for musicians that had played there the day before, but had just been left. So what would happen is Pink Floyd would come in, it'd be their session, they'd be ready to go, they'd find all these amazing instruments, pick them up and just try and stick them into the, the record they were working on that day. Hmm. I think the other big theme I'd bring up is, uh, in my mind, I always kind of just put like this and Sgt. Pepper's and Days of the Future Past and Disraeli Gears in one big psychedelic blob. Like, oh yeah, that's 1967 British psychedelia. That's over there. I think now... Staring it right in the face, we have got Sgt. Pepper's, which we did two weeks ago, and Piper at the Gates of Dawn, released, I don't know, four months apart. And one is the Beatles, who are battle-hardened touring veterans who have now come to make some art rock. And one is Pink Floyd, some dudes who just put together a band and just got chucked into the studio. And I, I can feel that it's the same air they're breathing in the same musical space they're inhabiting but the professionalism on sergeant peppers and the amateurism in a good way on piper at the gates of dawn was really apparent when i looked at them side by side (laughs) which i really have never done and it feels like these are kids just excited to play around in the studio so i guess you know what you say really makes sense yeah I'm, i'm hearing that yeah, yeah, I, I feel that. Like I say, people are always going to be quick to talk about, oh, it's the daddy decline of this guy. It's, it's like captured on tape. It's like, I don't think that's true at all. Like you, you're hearing a band who are like excited, you know, they're on the crest of some kind of wave of something big that's about to happen in their lives. You know, they're, I think they're gelling, like they're really enjoying yep. the process together. And, and you are right. I, I feel like a really big part of this story is they're just young kids who really want to be a part of the scene and are just so psyched to get this record deal, basically. Mm. And I, I can feel that they, they brought that excitement. Weirdly, I was listening to a, an interview with David Gilmore earlier on today because he was, he was actually quite close with Sid before ever being anything to do with the band. And he talks about meeting Sid before this and saying that he saw, you know, that look or that not proper, that not proper look, you know, um, he described oh, the thousand as, yards stare. well, he, mm. they described as the, I can't remember how Roger, Roger Waters describes it in one of the songs, but he, he you know, he gives that description mm. and he said like the, the other guys just didn't see it because they're with him for so much of the time. Mm. Uh, yeah. and, this, and he was saying like, you know, having been away and then coming back because mm. Gilmore's band at the time were doing quite well yeah. and so he'd been away, you know, and he came back and he said, like, I saw this change, but the other guys, no, they're not seeing it. So I don't think it's anything that they would have been concerned about whilst making this this yeah. record. I, I think obviously the loss of their friend Sid, and I, I think that's got to have been so horrible to be, you're 20 years mm. old, you're on the cusp of like fame and fortune, like what you had as a band all work towards. Because obviously they were, you know, all like college buddies together, basically. You know, these are also 20-year-olds in 1967. So one guy just, quote-unquote, can't get it together. And I don't think there would have been a language for what that meant. 
I think it's just like he just can't get it together and he's he's flaking out on shows and he's not being lucid and he's he's being disruptive in the studio which he would go on to do in the second album so he's only briefly in the second album and um Roger and David and at some point Rick go on to produce Sid's two solo albums and they talk about the frustration at the time in 1968 or 69 or whatever feeling like Sid why can't you just get it together you've got this musical career that you should be working on but I don't think there was a understanding of what was happening to Sid basically yeah the Joe Rogan podcast had Roger Waters on very recently and he talked about this period quite a lot actually yeah but I think what came across despite how how deep you go into it was that you know he really loved this guy and he's still sad now because it's like this was their songwriter. This was the guy, you know, who wrote these songs that, that got them recognised yep. in the first place. And he had to learn to write songs. Yep. And it's it's just amazing that he went on, or the band went on, to, to be so successful. You know, what's the chances of that? We'll talk about this in a little bit, but about the amazing, uh, I guess, transition, obviously, to the behemoth that Pink Floyd becomes. And we'll talk about what was left over from this period. But I guess to finish that point, and then we'll get on to the gnomes, you know, obviously I think it's super traumatic for a bunch of 20-year-olds to lose a good friend, but he's still there, and I think that makes it all the more confusing. But all of this to be said, I actually have been wrestling with this as I've been listening to this album this last time around, like, and actually I want to put a pin in all of that and say, you know what? It's a really joyful album. This, this album is filled to the brim with, like, delightful little parts. And Nick Mason famously will go on to say the next album, Saucer Full of Secrets, is his favorite album. And I could totally imagine why. I can see that at this point, everyone is playing something. There's, like, unlimited freedom. And then also, I think this is the rise up. This isn't the, oh, I have to stare in the mirror and figure out what fame means. This is the... Like, perfect creative freedom and the long march to fame that must have been just an absolute riot for these guys. So I could imagine that this whole stretch of albums, probably up until Dark Side, would have just been so fun to make and so satisfying career-wise. Because I think that's the other really nice thing about Pink Floyd is they start this as a moderate hit when it comes out, and then they march and march, and every album they do a little bit better, and then they hit mega stardom with Dark Side of the Moon. And then mega, mega, like, legendary stardom at the end with The Wall. And I think that's the most amazing thing, is Pink Floyd just starts at a pretty moderate high and then just builds with every album pretty directly towards The Wall. And I guess just for all of you at home, the main transition that happens is obviously Sid Barrett has to leave. And there's lots of different accounts of how this goes, but basically Sid Barrett cannot function in the band anymore. So they bring on... David Gilmore, singer and guitarist in the local scene um, and friend of Sid Barrett, to kind of cover for Sid Barrett. So he plays the Sid Barrett songs like Sid Barrett and then ultimately just becomes the new singer and guitarist in the band and then they go on to become the Pink Floyd that we know and love. So that being said, what elements do you think Pink Floyd just completely jettisoned after this period and what do you think they, they maintained? So... Roger himself talks about that whole jaunty Englishness that you hear in in the the writing of Sid, and yeah, it sounds wacky, but it's it's really upbeat and it's and it's jolly. One thing I notice about that, you know, if if, if you look at this album as like light and dark, those are the light elements. 
are all all these jolly Englishness. But what I heard was someone who may be cooped up indoors all day, and it's that point where they step outside. Yep. Like he talks about the outdoors and the creatures and the objects that inhabit the countryside, yep. real or imagined, with that positive light. And he, he uses these jaunty lyrics that you shouldn't be able to land. And he seems yep. to, cause he, and he just delivers them quite confidently. They sound like nursery rhymes or whatever. But Roger Waters cannot write that way. He doesn't no, write that way. No, no. And these sort of darker tones that are present in this album, you know, I feel like they're really shaped not by anyone's mental decline, but by the equipment they're using. Gotcha. You, you said it yourself, like David is his friend, that he's in there to pick up the playing parts that he's not able to do in the studio anymore. He's essentially spent quite a bit of time playing with Sid when they were yep. like teenagers. They played guitar together before there was Pink Floyd. So that's what's taken on. Literally, he's taken that fuzz pedal, that delay unit, <laughs> you know, yeah. So there's like the guitar this, rig, basically. Yeah, like this is seamless yep. transition of guitar tones, which I'll happily go into detail on. That are like an iconic sound for David going on. <laughs> Obviously, he's got his own stuff, but you know, one of the big ones is the the Bison Echo Rec, and you hear this delay unit like all over Pink Floyd's latest stuff. And it's a really interesting delay unit, and I will go into it. <laughs> so, like, tape delay. Like, you can do so much with tape delay. You can, you can literally get your fingers in there and adjust the speed with by putting pressure on it. But the, the Echo Rec was actually like a, a metal drum that span with magnets attached to it. So it was kind of fixed. It had, like, buttons you pressed with fixed intervals of time. So... Yeah, you just had a button that was that speed and a button that was that speed. Yeah, there was wobble to it because it's, you know... A physical unit. Yeah, it's a yeah. piece of kit from the 60s. But because it's got these fixed intervals, you're going to hear that same musicality every time you use it. Gotcha, yeah. You know, you know all the spacey stuff you're hearing in this, like, uh, Stella Overdrive, what a, great, what a great name for a track. You know, it's, it's fed by that piece of kit. Or the fuzz pedal he's using. He's using a specific fuzz pedal, you know. And you could say that about, you know, psychedelic music in general. Like, it's all about fuzz and what that does to your amplifier. Yep. To me, that's the stuff that goes forward after this album. It's the, the darker elements, you know, the light elements. The jaunty English songs. Yeah, basically. the jaunty English songs. Yeah, they go. <laughs> I, I actually really like the bass on those ones. Like, the way the bass plays with the, the organ, I actually... You know, I think there's there's some really good production there. Again, it's quite a subtle use of it. It doesn't overpower anything. That's not anything I'd say is like a signature sound. I just think that's to do with, you know, the production technique on this one. But yeah, you know, there's some, there's some nice contrast here. And I think if you had all of the light and all of the dark on two separate albums, you wouldn't, they wouldn't be as interesting. No, and I think that, that, that tension really underpins the greatness of this album. So Rufus, having not really experienced this part of Floyd, is there anything you could hear from this that you heard then later in, in Floyd Floyd? Classic Floyd, I guess. Yeah, I think the most notable thing is actually the style of song and the content. And I think this plays on Ed's point as well. And obviously it this doesn't include the sort of jaunty, uh, dainty, dancey English 
yeah, um, rhyming right. slang songs, as it were. You know, this is quite famous. Um, Hans Keller interview with Sid Barrett and Waters. It's famous because Hans Keller just kind of shits on the entire album and them as musicians. But I think something Sid says is quite poignant um, on that interview where he said, basically, all the tracks are what they are because they realise they don't have to be danceable in order to be popular anymore and that was very much the thing in the 60s ah, you know dance yep. halls you were the primary scene uh, where music was played and you know you got popular because you could play music that everyone didn't necessarily have to listen to word for word but could just dance along to right yeah and they realized we don't have to do that anymore we can start doing really weird shit and yep. people are still gonna love it and i think they took that mantra to the next level just time and time and again as the albums progressed and we're we're absolutely going to talk about that i think that's one of the the strongest themes for me is that pink floyd maintain mm. their weirdness yeah, yeah. This, this this whole period like I, I think about um fleetwood mac you know with with peter green it's like a really similar story isn't it you know like they're kind of bigger than the beatles at that point because they played music that you could dance to you know these these sort of like upbeat blues covers and they had the same thing, like their their front man had a breakdown and disappears and then someone else has to step in and become the new songwriter. And not only did they survive, they became Fleetwood Mac. Fleetwood Mac <laughs> rock behemoths. It's like it's like the same story. Yeah. It's really interesting. And I guess this is probably just because there's actually like relative to all of the bands that start, there's a tiny, tiny fraction that we ever hear about. I was like, it's funny, I'm surprised that you don't hear this story all the time of an unstable front man who when the limelight comes because the limelight must just be absolutely crushing you know you're absolutely right peter green is another one of these tales and and it's another one where like it's the kind of the blames put on the drugs when the reality is probably you know these guys yeah this is just when these things oh, come well like on. you know it's a creative genius you know is is often someone who spends a lot of time indoors creating and yeah. you know they then they're like thrust into the most ridiculous limelight and that takes a toll and so yeah it's easy to go oh you know they were on lsd and blah 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 but you know i think the reality is and the beatles say the same thing you know they weren't looked after there wasn't people didn't know how to how to deal with that level of fame it never happened before and and yeah and they're all 20 like yeah they're they're just kids and like you look at some of the situations the beatles were in that we've talked about before it's like it's dangerous it's lucky these guys survived with their lives, you know, yeah. And I, I think classic Pink Floyd will use it again, famously for Shine On You Crazy Diamond, Wish You Were Here. And I don't think it's even that cynical. I think it's that uh, people have friends and whatever that they miss. Like, it is yeah. that simple. And I think it's yeah. the Roger could dig up the feeling of missing a good friend who is now lost to him, make some great songs about it, and... Uh, the world wants to hear it like these are powerful songs about quite a touching situation i think maybe and somewhat controversially pink floyd wouldn't be as successful if it hadn't have happened this way i definitely think that a lot of their success is from the inspiration that barrett left you know he sort of set the tone but then also him leaving and the the way in which he left allowed them to like you say like cool on that and i think they're so influential and in a way, you know, maybe he's still part of the band in a weird way all that for all this time, but never there 
in person. To play the what-if game, I think if Sid hadn't had mental health issues, I think that they would have gone into the Canterbury scene. And the Canterbury scene was basically the really chilled countryside version of Prague. And so I often think, like, yep, I I think if Sid had had stayed in Pink Floyd and they had stayed as a thing, I think he'd have remained the primary songwriter. And I won't talk about him specifically, but let's say a writer like him who wrote very psychedelic-y songs actually don't think was going to transition to the 70s particularly well. Because I think uh, you needed David Gilmour's really, really crystalline blues skills and then Roger Waters' look-at-society-look-at-yourself lyrics. I think you needed both of those to become megastars. I think if Pink Floyd had stayed in the nursery rhyme, they could have maybe gotten as big as Peter Gabriel Genesis, and they'd become like a huge cult band. But I think it it required them to pass the torch to Roger and Dave, ultimately, to become 70s powerhouses. In another way as well, like, the music they're making in 67 with this album, you know, when when you watch them play it live, it's amazing it's unbelievable like the the effort that goes into the production for the live show is almost equal to that of the effort that's gone into the song itself and i think this is partly my problem with the album is i don't know if it translates so well just to just to like to to listen to media right like i don't know if as a song on its own does it enough justice and i think the later songs of pink floyd don't have that problem because they don't necessarily have this reliance on the visual show to give this sense of wonder or joyfulness or sadness where it's clear when they're doing their live shows in 67 that they really needed that to to pump it to the next level yeah yeah to pump it to the next level to convey what they wanted to convey with the song and the meaning of that song and i was going to say i think the the apprenticeship pink floyd will do between now and then and I feel this very strongly, as they do, I think, somewhere between two and four, I don't know how many actually got finished, but movie soundtracks. And I think that makes them slow down and consider how you start, middle, and end an album. Mm. And Pink Floyd's albums are masterpieces in kind of emotional construction. And uh, they're going to learn that over the next few albums. Uh, but this album right now, and then Saucer Full of Secrets, and then more, so their first three albums, have this really all-over-the-place energy. And I have a lot of affection for this album as basically a tiny little box filled with little jewels, where I was <laughs> like, ooh, look, like, there's Lucifer Sam, there's Matilda Mother, like, oh, what a delightful jewel. And then I can put it back in the box. But I, I, I never feel like I'm on a journey, and I, I feel like I could listen to this album on shuffle, I don't even really know what the track order is, if not for the fact that it's written in front of me. I couldn't have told you the track order, which is funny because then we get to Dark Side of the Moon and it's this like divinely inspired architecture within the music almost, where it's like, oh yeah, like that has to be the beginning and that has to be the middle and this is side two and blah, 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 blah. I think this one's just like, ooh, yet another delightful little song. (laughs) So I find them to be tiny little jewels of delightfulness. But ultimately... This era just feels like a bunch of singles, and I think we'll start right at the beginning with their very first single, Arnold Lane. So 1967, a young Pink Floyd gets signed 
and they get to go into the studio with Norman Smith and record Arnold Lane. And Arnold Lane was, I believe, a local character. I don't know if his name actually was Arnold Lane, but he was a local character who used to steal women's underwear off the clothesline. And then Sid Barrett made a song about him. I guess beyond the kind of English penchant for a quote-unquote character, I don't have a lot to say about the subject matter of the song, but what I will say is this sounds really cheaply made. Like, this song sounds so cheaply recorded. And uh, and I don't really know this, but in 1960s, for these young bands, did they trial out, like, you get three minutes, go into a studio, see what you got, but we're not going to invest money in it, basically. Mm. Sergeant Pepper sounds like really wild but it sounds so professional and and sounds actually pretty fresh yeah this is very fuzzy crunchy right yeah these are very crunchy and it just has the i guess just the complete all over the place um, sound of pink floyd personally i think this album the piper is 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 probably the only it's the only thing that you've got with Sid on it that's polished. No, I'd say this is true. And and I think this one, obviously, they're coming pretty much hot off the clubs. And they go from this to then make See Emily Play, which I think is their first really big hit. So See Emily Play is based on a psychedelic trip Sid Barrett had. That's about it. There, there's the, That's the background to the story. And then he just wrote a story about this, this Emily person. Again, like, it's just, I absolutely love the construction of the song. It has all of the fun, like, Beatles chord shifting. It's got a wacky harpsichord solo. And I could see why you'd hear these first two singles from Pink Floyd and be like, okay, this is a band I'm interested in. It's 1967. I'm looking for some crazy psychedelia. This is a band to watch. Yeah. Your your first response to this was, was like, yeah, this this is a weird... Weird band to listen to with modern ears. It really yeah. is. Like, yeah, you know, we keep talking about the this sort of nursery rhyme style songwriting, and you know what what would be the the fate of the band had Sid remained remained at the helm. And it's like, I, you know, I've got kind of two thoughts on that. One is maybe he wouldn't carry on writing that way. We won't. We, there's no way to know. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and I don't think it's actually quite as nursery rhymey as we keep saying it is you know like he does reference like some some books that he's he's clearly into that we can talk about the other band that i can think of that that write that way at this time is the kinks oh interesting okay again it's just they're just talking about things like that are english only english people see objects that you only get in the country like you know turns of phrases you don't hear elsewhere and how well did they do in america yeah, I mean they 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 are known, but again, they're not they're, they're not, not they're not Pink Floyd. They're not nineteen seventy three Dark Side. Exactly, and and I think you know, yeah, it's interesting, and and like the guy is clearly intelligent, and yeah. he's you know he's he's put stuff from really interesting books into his work. He's even like quite a genius painter, you know. Like there's a lot to this guy. He's not just writing silly nursery rhymes. Like it's it's deep stuff, but it's not. It's not for a, a wide audience, is it? You think of music that really resonates with people is really day-to-day stuff, isn't it? Well, and I was going to say, I, I feel like maybe that's the thing, is I, I think they would have been kneecapped if they had continued with this type of music. I, I think like what takes 
Pink Floyd to superstardom later is the universality of what they talk about. And it, it can't be the English countryside, as in that can make you a cult band and that can make you a well-respected cult band, but you become transatlantic and then global superstars when you start singing about the pressures of modern life or alienation or whatever. Mm-hmm. And which is what Pink Floyd would go on to do. Yeah. But, like, you know, say, like, the song, like, The Gnome. <laughs> that actually sounds like classic prog right there. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. But, like, I think this this character of The Gnome, like, he's he's whining and dining and biding his time... Look at the sky, look at the river, isn't it good? You know, yeah. this, this is, like I was saying before, this sounds like someone who's been cooped up indoors. Yeah. And he's just put this silly character to the fact that he's like, he feels great about leaving his Being space. Outside. Probably, maybe even leaving the studio at the end of the day, you know? And, and, yeah. and he's like, he's feeling the air on his face. And he's like, oh, this is so much better. You know, do I really want yeah. to be in there doing this music stuff? <laughs> I, I didn't hear anything about him particularly loving the studio. And I think obviously more of the capital S stories come from later when he actively does not want to be in the studio and mm. is just being obstinate, as they would have said. Mm. But like I can't imagine that he was a guy who loved multiple takes. And actually, I think this is not a clean album. And we'll come on to it with Astronomy Domine. And obviously, there's some riffs on this album but I couldn't really, I mean, I can hum them, but like, I don't think of them as like, oh yeah, there's that riff and there's that riff. It's like, here's another musical line that's coming up and then just kidding, we're going to have some harpsichord here and then we're <laughs> going to have some organ here. And I, I never get the feel like, okay, we're going to spotlight this riff and then we're going to spotlight this vocal phrase. It's just another thing and another thing and another thing layered on other things and other things and other things. And I feel like it's a very cluttery album, which I like. I just think that it's a it's full. Do you know what I think? Say if we was to to split the album in half, so you got light side, which are the yeah. the, the songs they've written, <laughs> and then yep. dark side being you know the more jammy ones. Yeah, you hear something like Interstellar Overdrive. I don't think oh there's yep. a riff in there. There's a this that in there. I think it sounds like movie score. Yeah. So like Interstellar Overdrive kept coming into my head. Like if I was a director for a movie. And like I'd, I'd make it my mission to like use bits from this song to make a spy movie. It's got that surf rock thing going on there, like the tension moves about all over the place, but it's just jamming. Starting with Astronomy Domine, I think we get into that. It was very obvious that they were meant to have like a light show, as Rufus said. There's meant to be a light show yeah. behind them. <laughs> and I think Astronomy Domine is great for me i i think it's more tuneful than interstellar overdrive but it's in the same obviously in the same space rock vein and it's funny i feel like they only did this and then interstellar overdrive and for the rest (laughs) of time they got labeled space rock (laughs) there's something quite jarring about having astronomy dominate was the first um uh song on it and starting off with that it's quite a fun fun track but then then moving into stuff like the gnome yeah it's just like it's very difficult to string those songs together and i guess this is what ed was bringing up about the light in the dark as in i think you have yeah. the kind of more nursery rhyme and i'll and i'll take your point about maybe that it's got more of a literary edge but it feels really sing-songy and nursery rhymey and then the obvious freak out jams and i think again <laughs> Agreeing with my point is uh, <laughs> Sergeant Pepper's was obviously massively eclectic. 
and they did like 12 styles in 13 songs. I think this is equally as eclectic, but I'll say there's not a style. And I think that's actually the interesting thing to me is it's the same level of eclecticism, but I guess there's a little bit of like surf rock here, but there's not really like, I don't hear folk really. I don't hear the blues really. It's just like psychedelic onslaught all the time. Even though every song does have a flavor, like the Scarecrow's all built on wood blocks, and you know this one's all built on uh, like surf guitar, and then there's really interesting keyboard work, which actually I'll come to now. I think one of the most interesting developments Pink Floyd undergoes is right now it's Rick in one ear and Sid in the other ear. So keyboard doing a ton of stuff and guitar in the other ear doing a ton of stuff. They'll continue that all the way up through probably uh, Sauceful Secrets, kind of almost into metal. But then by Dark Side of the Moon, the keyboards become a pad for just guitar solos. And I, I was like, it's an interesting, it's an interesting transition with Pink Floyd, but I'd say that's also an interesting transition with music in general or rock music in general keyboards and guitars were on equal footing and then it became keyboards are the pad on which a guitar can just rock over yeah it's interesting isn't it it's like when do these things happen just because they happened and when was it like actually chosen that we're going to do it that way because i heard it on this album you know when do things become like the trope and on this album i I feel like the the keys they tend to come in in those clean bits of of the of the record don't they when you really hear them and it's a separate thing. They're not working against the guitar or with the guitar. It's instead of. Um, and I think they, they work really well with... Like, like Every time I notice the organ, I, it's like it's when I really hear like really good bass lines when I didn't notice them before. We'll come to that as well right now. And I think that's another really obvious sonic element of this. So now, obviously, you'd have drums and bass right down the middle. And then you'd have guitar and keyboards in one ear or the other ear, or maybe also kind of down the middle if it was like a, a, a riff or something. I feel like Norman Smith, God bless him, threw caution to the wind, and the guitars in one ear sometimes, the bass is in another ear, the drums are in the, like, far back in the mix, and then for the next song, the drums will be up at the front and the bass is in the back. And uh, I, I honestly felt like every day he just mixed each song a little bit differently. Mm. And I think that was part of the the eclecticism of this album. I never sat down and been like, okay, they just ever played these 11 songs or 13 songs, whatever it is. They just never sat down, played them in one room, and he just kind of put a a hot mic on it. It was always like every day we're just going to record some element and chuck it in one ear at some level, and we'll just see what comes out. Yeah, I think that's something that I didn't enjoy about the album was the 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 use of, the use of stereo. There's like there's an innocence to it. It's like it sounds like someone who's just not <laughs> yeah. really not really thought about it that much. But he probably was experimenting and playing. Like I feel like the mix in regard to the volume of each instrument. Like I really enjoy that. I think you know the way the organ and the bass work beautifully together. Like yep. I think he records. You know the fuzz element of the guitar nicely. Um, I think that is actually a tricky thing to do, whether you do it on purpose or not. Like I think he's yeah. got like some really good guitar tones on there. But yeah, this this the, the stereo. <laughs> I don't. I don't yeah. like. I just don't like hard panning 
I think it just it just it throws me too much when it's flopping about the place like that. And I will say, I think that probably contributes to why I think this album sounds cheap. And I don't think that's necessarily true if we talk about like actual pounds and pence. I, I don't know how much this costs to make relative to, say, Sgt. Pepper's. But uh, it sounds so much more amateurish in that sense. You know, like they did have some expensive bits of gear. I mean, they're they're in Abbey Road for this album, so they're next to they are next to the Beatles. It's it's expensive stuff that yeah. they're using. Like mm. that, you know, they didn't have that space on the cheap, so they their label must have given them some money to play with here. You know, I think, you know, you've got producers just worked with the Beatles. He couldn't have been cheap. So I think quite famously with Norman, he was less of a producer who just asked for takes and then told them not to go away after that was done, you know. But rather, they could play more of a part with the actual production side of things. So he would invite them into the booth. And I do wonder... How much this is their fault, too. Oh, I see. (laughs) Yeah, how much did they do and how much did Norman do? Right. You know, they were really trying to push the boundaries of the time. So were they also being like... Yeah, let's stick the drums all in the left ear. That sounds great. And, you know, especially with Norman being quite, I guess, new to the process. I mean, obviously he did stuff for the Beatles with, with engineering for them, but but to produce a whole album is, is different. And I think, you know, especially when you're producing a bunch of 20-year-old kids, <laughs> there's, a, there's a bit of people management in there as well, yeah. right? Yep. So Shepherding. I, I wonder how much that had to play. Yeah. So, after Astronomy Domine, we come to the lighter side of this album, Lucifer Sam. And I guess it's funny because these are still pretty creepy songs. Yeah, I don't think this one fits into the light category. (laughs) No, no, no. But I think, you know, this is the other part of the album where it's just filled with these, like, little story songs, basically. And I don't really know what this song's about. I don't know if you have much to say about this song or indeed the gnome or the scarecrow. I think for this, this one, it's just, you know... It just sounds like paranoia to me. It's it sounds yeah. like I'm being pursued. Yeah, it's it is great chase music. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> there's a thing he does where the slide sounds. He uses like a Zippo lighter. Okay, and I think it seems oh. like a little like a cheap thing to to use like if you haven't got a slide. But if you think about it, like the Zippo, yeah, it has like the slide bit. But it's also got like mm. a little latch on there. You know, like where you, where where the the lid flips over and it's scratchy and you can hear like this sort of scratch sound. I think that along with the, the sound of the delay, like I actually really dig that. It's like, it's just a cool noise. So it's like, I imagine this would be like a great track to hear them play live. And I can imagine there being like a bit of, you know, guitar virtuosity that goes on here that just cannot be captured in the, in the studio setting. Do you reckon he whacked out the Zippo lighter for the live performances? Oh yeah, yeah. So he did that quite a bit. But yeah, oh, so it's but you know what I mean it's just playing a bit of slide, but I just yeah. think like the fact that he uses that instead of an actual slide, you've got this weird scrape sound that you hear in this track, and I think that's what it is. It's almost a bit punk, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah. And I think like yeah, these these young guys, aren't they? With lots of energy. Like it is punk. It doesn't sound punk, but <laughs> <laughs> but something that's completely not punk is Matilda Mother. <laughs> um, <laughs> The, the next song, and again, it just keeps up with the theme of like these little like stories about about people or things or whatever. 
And the thing that just absolutely jumps out at to me is men, Rick Wright and Sid Barrett really had a really good vocal, I don't know, duo. Yeah. Like their vo- their voices are so similar. There's like a subharmony that it starts off with in this. It's really low. Like I can't hit that that note. <laughs> um, mm. And it, it blends really well with the main vocal, I think. But it, as the song goes on, it becomes more of a typical vocal harmony you'd imagine in, a, in this sort of song. But is the magic of their vocals that their voices are really similar? Because I think now of uh, Peter Gabriel and Phil Collins, that they're similar but not the same. Like, is that the magic of, of singing together well? I think usually when you are looking for layered vocals, it's better to have different tonalities, right? Like different voices, because it brings a width and sort of richness to the vocal that you lose if it's just the same person or the same sounding person. Yeah. I think perhaps the only difference there is when you're then doing harmonies. If you're doing harmonies, then perhaps you want a voice that's closer to that of the the leading vocal. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah, because I, like, I, I really like Rick's voice a lot, and we don't really get to hear that much of it throughout Pink Floyd's career. But uh, obviously he and Dave had a really, really good thing going on. But he and Sid had a very good thing going on. Mm. It must just be, for me at least, that Rick sounds just enough different from Sid that he brings, as you say, that that width or that breadth or whatever it is, whilst not being jarringly different. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? It's like, from a producer's perspective, what Rufus just says is obvious. It's like, yeah, you've got these different textures, gives you all that width and space and makes the record interesting. But you've also got like these kind of world music scales being used here. There's like this kind of North African sort of vibe that I can hear. Yeah. And it's it's quite complex for young guys to be, you know, putting these sort of textures into the music. I, I don't know what that was, but Rick keeps it going for the next few albums mm. is kind of a very I'll call it arabesque. What, just sort of harmonic minor and stuff like that? Or yeah, is it... and I think, it, you know, obviously it's the thing that, that influenced uh, surf rock, but it's got, mm. the, yeah, that minor key with the drone yeah. going up and down. He's on the Farfisa organ. Obviously, Barrett will play around with those scales on his guitar, and uh, Gilmore will continue that tradition through their psychedelic years, kind of. So the, the next track bucks the trend in so much it's not about anything, it's probably actually my favorite song on this album, uh, and this is Flaming, and it's not really in that same nursery rhyme vein. It's kind of actually reminiscent to me of stuff on metal, and I think toward David Gilmore to have done this later in 1971, it would yeah. be a really chill song. But the song as it is now is just filled to the brim with bits, <laughs> like mm. just stuff <laughs> over it. But I just love this song. And I don't even feel like there's parts. I feel like he's just saying a thing, and that's in one tempo and time signature. And then he does another line, and that feels to be almost in a different tempo and time signature. Um, and, and I feel like it does work. And I don't know what it is about maybe the earnestness that he brings to this. You know, we talked about earnestness in the Days of the Future Past last week. Mm. But again, these songs, like, they're so about simple things. Yeah. Or I don't know how simple they are. Uh, they're about on-the-surface childish things, but he stares right down the camera. It's, I think you, su- you sum him up with this. Like he's he, He's got a way of delivering like lines that are just completely unlandable by normal humans, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, words like buttercups, like 
traveling yeah, by telephone you know yeah. yeah um sleeping on a dandelion you know like <laughs> lying on el what's what's it lying on an eider down yippee you can't yeah. see me but i can see you it's like talking about eider downs and actually using the word yippee yeah. i don't know people who can sing that stuff but he just does it it's like he doesn't think about it this is what the song's about i'm not going to spell out to you what the meaning of this song is but here are the words i'm using and take yeah. it or leave it i think people in general like they're so concerned with how people see them that they think too much about what they're writing maybe and yeah. you just wouldn't be able to say that t- today you know <laughs> and I, I guess this is listening to yes way too much but uh <laughs> flaming always feels like the most serious song on this album to me and i couldn't tell you why because it's very obviously probably talking about being a tiny little elf Living in a forest, like floating on an eider down, literally sitting on a unicorn, <laughs> literally, yeah, just checking out the buttercups, like that type of thing. And I was like, now that you mention it, it's like, oh yeah, it's also a, got the fairy tale element. But for some reason, and again, this is completely just yes, having completely melted my mind. I was like, oh, there's, the, it feels deep, and I've never looked into what the song's about at all, but it feels deep. I think it's a simple concept again. I think it's a guy who's, it just wants to be outdoors. You know, he's someone who feels cooped up and he just loves being outside. He loves nature and, and that's always the things that he talks about with positivity. So he is from Cambridge. So for our American listeners or our global listeners, what do you think being from Cambridge brought to this? In terms of is it a particularly rural part of England? It's, I mean, it's no concrete jungle. Um, <laughs> you know, as a kid who grew up in the country, I didn't think of fairies and toadstools and stuff i i don't know i i always rather than it being the cambridge influence although obviously he's aware of the english countryside i always saw it as a sort of lewis carroll-esque adventure into obscurity and psychedelia but but like actually that's an interesting author to bring up that's probably the sort of thing they would have been reading you know like yeah the, the name of the album comes from something that was mentioned in The Wind of the Willows, which is his favourite book. You know, Roger Waters describes Sid Barrett as the piper in another song. He is the piper of Pan to mm. his bandmates. You know, he's this whimsical, folky guy. But yeah, that, that was his favourite book, was Wind of the Willows, like a kid story that's yeah. little animals that have got their own personalities. And I was going to say, I actually think him being a piper a la Pan ties in with this whereas i feel like that you never quite feel relaxed in this album it's got the true wildness in (laughs) of nature yes yeah absolutely whereas you feel like you truly are kind of in the woods of psychedelia i was just thinking about it maybe that does make sense with the you know how ed was talking about the light and dark shades of the album because when you think about you know wind in the willows or lewis carroll's alice in wonderland they are on the surface quite whimsical, quite playful children's stories, but they have such dark undertones yep. as well. They're pretty creepy. And perhaps this album somehow mirrors that? Yes. Yeah. Makes me want to look at my fairy tales a little bit differently. Mm. Well, I mean, I think this is even true for fairy tales. Like, they're famously also creepy. <laughs> like, yeah. I was going to say, like, your OG fairy tales are 
all about elves abducting children. And teaching kids a lesson, right? Teaching yeah. Yeah, teaching them a lesson. And I think that's kind yeah. of the... I think there's an element of, like, you're on the edge of the woods, and there's a little gnome, and you don't know his intentions. Like, I think there's that that <laughs> element to to this. The, the lesson of this album is don't do LSD, kids. Don't Yeah, no drugs, and... Yeah. Uh, Stay in school, I guess. <laughs> so I guess after the the majesty of flaming, there's a, a brief little freak out here with power R talk H. And this is a completely instrumental song that's vocal scat rap giving way into a long, basically keyboard solo. And honestly, I, I love this song. It's so unusual. And then it's just so nice to hear Rick Wright just jam out. Like, I really love his piano style. And I'm actually, I look back and I'm sad that he never did, like, a piano trio jazz album. I actually think he has a really pleasing piano style. And we'll hear less of that as Pink Floyd goes on, which is a tragedy. But I think this brings up probably the most obvious thing to me that Pink Floyd retained in their very DNA. And that's wild experimentation. And I think every album from here on out, they will experiment wildly. And you think even Dark Side of the Moon, you know, their most commercial pop hit, they have voices from interviews that they interspersed in the album. They'll have, you know, all sorts of like weird soundscapes in all of their commercially successful albums. And I actually think that was one of the things that brought Pink Floyd from being, quote unquote, just a classic rock band. And simultaneously maintained their <laughs> important for this podcast their prog pedigree <laughs> um but i think this wild 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 experimentation the others would carry on it's elastic isn't it this track it's elastic in its mood it starts off with this kind of syncopated vocal rhythmy loop thing it, yeah when that kicked in i felt like yeah this this has caught me straight away and then Again, more great use of the time-based effect. I think the um, you know that very slight delay that causes flanging is used yes. on the drum there. But again, it's not it's not dramatic. I think this is this is the one where it's got like the better guitar tone for me. It's like that nice crunchy sound that's you know yeah. it's it's a fuzz pedal with the volume rolled off a little bit. That's classic rock, just dialed in real sweet. And then as soon as the organ kicks in, it just alters it's this elastic mood band it's yeah it's really interesting i do like it with that big sort of uh energetic crescendo sort of like two-thirds of the way through as well you know like it gets you so anxious i guess and then i don't know like halfway through the third minute it just kind of just peters out into this nice little soundscape it's very interesting it's got a beginning and a middle and end in a in a little jam well, and I was going to say, I think, again, that's that's something that maybe also Pink Floyd really maintained quite excellently relative to other bands, is I actually feel like they were such a vibes band. Mm. Frankly, it doesn't feel like they composed this song much. But that kind of the, like, we're going to start with some, some goofy mouth sounds and then build. And, and if that's just Rick just smashing on an organ or something, yeah, I can really feel that like you you feel pink floyd very intensely yeah i love all the vocal stuff on this album this track was great just seeing them play with the vocal stuff and i think that that's something you only do with people you're close with in the studio yeah. set otherwise the singer does his singing thing the guitarist does his, you know what i mean yeah. like it, it, it gets quite separated but when people are having fun together you, you could tell they were playing together yeah 
So we go from the insane experimentation of Pow R Talk H to Roger's first attempt at writing, take up thy stethoscope and walk. And the most obvious thing about this is, I don't think it's that great of a song, <laughs> but it melts away into some of the most wild jamming on this album. Yeah, the drums are great. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> honestly, I think they really do a good job capturing, I think, for posterity, their live, their live vibes. Yeah, I mm. think one of the notes I put on this one was organ, bass, and the surf tones. If that was a mainstream type written song, that would be that would be a seller right there for like just yep. sound. But it isn't. <laughs> it's not a mainstream. No, you know, music seems to help the pain, seems to motivate the brain. You know, like that's not a mainstream song, is it? <laughs> This is some dark stuff. And and we, we've got a while to go before Roger comes into his own. But I'm very glad to hear that he's starting the, the process. He's given it a shot. Given it a shot. <laughs> and I think genuinely, I think it's probably just like you need to get that confidence. And uh, in a Pink Floyd career trajectory, I, I don't think they could have grown into the people they needed to be with Sid there. Because obviously he was just so talented at this stage as a songwriter. I think, you know, the next one, the next album... Roger's going to get left hanging and left holding the compositional hot potato, basically. Yeah, he's got to get good, otherwise they fail. They fail. Right. And, uh, yeah. you know, necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. So the next one is the jam of jams. And interestingly, I think because it does all the things Astronomy Domine does, but worse, I don't really like this song as much. But this is one of their greatest fan favorites from this album, Interstellar Overdrive. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> oh, and I was going to say, watching this with the visuals would have probably been a treat. Yeah. I think it's got, again, it's got that spy movie vibe that I like. Yeah. I, w- I was kind of listening to that Echo Rec sound, which is the, the delay unit I was talking about before. I, I love the use of it on this, and it made me think, like, I, I want this in my guitar rig. You know, actually, it's funny you mention this. I actually do think a lot of this soundscape came back with, I'm going to completely butcher the name, but Karabringarin. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> Karabringarin. Huh? Karabang. K-H-R. That, that jammy guitar band. Oh, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Cur- I'm not going Cur- to oh, try fuck, it. <laughs> Cur- you dickheads. Karangabin. 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 There we go. Karangabin. No, this kind of, yeah, this kind of, and, and uh, there was a band that I really enjoyed, Tennis. I think this super, super, super 60 sound, like this very distilled 60 sound that actually the Beatles were too polished to have. I think this really 60 sound, I think you hear again now in the neo-psychedelic bands like Rufus. <laughs> so we've come back out of space and we come very much onto the ground and it's finally time to meet the little guy we've been talking about for an hour now grimble grumble the gnome <laughs> so let's actually talk about this track finally this is again one of my favorite songs on this album much as i've probably dunked on it previously for being about the gnome i just love it like, I, I think it's so well arranged, and I feel like they do a good job of him, like, skipping through the forest, and then he comes, I don't know, to a clearing, and uh, he looks at the sky, he looks at the river, isn't it good? And you feel like you're being washed in the river. I don't know if this was them or if this was Norman, but man, they captured the the vibe of being a gnome. <laughs> 
I think I think the band they do listen to the the singer and they they play off his his vibes. Yes, definitely. I don't think the gnome's supposed to be like a literal gnome. I think it, he is just generally giving off his love of nature and being outside. I find this one of the more pleasant lessons on the like just generally. I know, I know the content is quite sort of playful and whimsical, but but actually just to listen to is is really pleasant. And it's such a far cry from the sort of harsh overtones of like droning guitars that you get in Interstellar Overdrive. Yeah. <laughs> just suddenly you're in a little forest. <laughs> yeah. Man, it's a very clean song. Yeah. And actually this is probably one of the most decluttered songs on the album, which is probably why I've always been drawn to it. And mm. it's also just it's a two minute interlude. Like there's nothing more to it. It's just he talks about a, a gnome walking around and uh to Ed's point, maybe it is a, a cry to go back to nature, to leave the studio or whatever. And I would totally take that point. But whatever it is, it puts you in the headspace of being a gnome. <laughs> so yeah. good on you, good on you, Sid. Do we know, like, I don't know where Sid was born. Like, was he... Uh, he's born in Cambridge. He's born in Cambridge, okay. Like the city of. Because it's quite clear that he's got this love of nature. And yeah. I just wonder where it blossomed from. Uh, you know, I think uh, having been to Cambridge, you don't need to walk that far. And I imagine yeah. this was even more true in 1967. You don't need to walk that far until you're in a field. Mm. Yeah. This is also like from the university itself. Like you go out, there's a giant field in the town town. Mm. But there's the river that runs through Cambridge, the Cam. Mm. And even now it's a pretty, you know, even in when was I last there, two 2019 it's a pretty whimsical place with people punting up and down the river with those little boats and you could imagine lazing away yeah i went to oxford when everyone was punting down the river and it was filthy <laughs> just thought, this is not the... this is not a safe space for a gnome <laughs> yeah this, this is no no gnome should be here no gnomes well they got the little fish net and fishing them out of the river <laughs> um <laughs> A little, little two-headed gnomes, <laughs> just. But no, Cambridge, even now in two thousand whatever it is, it is still a pretty whimsical town. And mm. as I say, if you are on the edge of Cambridge, you can go out to kind of river and/or field pretty quickly. And there's still ancient oaks, even within the town. It's it's very Harry Pottery, <laughs> and you can mm. imagine the Hilda folk living within all the nooks and crannies of this like you know, what feels like genuinely a pretty ancient place. Yeah. That makes sense. That's the thing. I think if, if you're, you know, a musician or a painter and you spend all your time creating stuff indoors, you just want to get outside full stop. And and as you brought up, I feel like that's probably this, I don't know how consciously it is, but he's looking out the, the studio window thinking like, man, I want to be back in the field. Yeah. So speaking of fields, well, actually, so we, we take a quick little detour to chapter 24. <laughs> that would have been a fantastic segue. <laughs> Speaking of reading, like they probably do in Cambridge, thank you for that transition. Chapter 24. Frankly, this is the only song on this album that I really skip. It's not whimsical and it's not dark and it's not intense. It's the worst part of this album where it's just annoying sound effects and disjointed lyrics. But it's not melodic. And actually, I think I will then use this part to bring up how unbelievably good Sid Barrett was at melodies. I, I'll, I'll take your point, Rufus, that this is filled to the brim, clogged 
with sound effects and nonsense. But can you imagine a world in which someone sang these songs with just an acoustic guitar and they are pleasant sing-songy songs? Perhaps you don't have to remove all of it, but I think if you tone it down like 30%, then suddenly you've got Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they just needed someone just to be like, this is great, but you don't need that, you don't need that, and let's keep this. And then it would have been a much better song. Like Lyrically, this is the one that I think he's done the best job on. So it would be the one to, to... to do the best production on. For sure. It made me think, what is this book that he's the loosely writing the lyrics based on? This isn't like he's just reading words from that book. He's done his own interpretation of it. He's made rhyme of the words he's read in the book. Um, and to do that is actually a hell of a feat, I think. You know, you're reinterpreting a, a, a narrative, but you're doing it in a way that is your own work and is poetic and... It's really interesting. I was, I was there listening to these lines thinking, you know, I don't really understand what that means, but I, I want to know, like, I want to I want to read this book, you know. I think generally he's, he's a guy who's interested in the subject matter of his lyrics, first and foremost. And I think the reason why he can land a clumsy lyric, like, no, I don't mean like it's a badly written lyric. I mean, like, he can land a lyric that's got too many syllables in it in the wrong place. Because he does it all the time, because he doesn't write melody first. He he just he has his poems and he puts them to music. There are these vocal runs that he does. There's a, it's a little bit at the start and then quite a lot in the second half that I think like they're really good and they're really nice to listen to. And I think if they structured the song more around those and less around the stuff that, that kind of lies smack bang in the middle, then they could have made something better, basically. Because it's got that airy, floaty vibe in places that isn't really touched on in the rest of the album that much, I don't think. You know, again, it's it's a case of having a, a new feeling to one of the songs in the album, which is interesting, but also I think they just needed to... Uh, just a little bit more... Focus. Yeah, it sounds weird. Remove 30%, but double down on other bits. Yep. So, chapter 24, a very, very interesting effort lyrically. Then we come to The Scarecrow, which I think is one of the most interesting songs sonically. And I think the absolute bravery of basically making a woodblock song in 1967 uh, strikes to the creativity of these four lads. The woodblock thing, it almost sounds like a loop. You're like, can you get people in looping? They put something down, it just flips yeah. over, and they just add another layer, and then they add another layer. I don't know if they recorded it that way, but it's, I don't know, I kind of heard that. Very interesting if they did. I can't imagine that they would have. Again, I think this whole thing was done on four track, so that's something else. Mm-hmm. And again, like it's, I don't want to say cheap, but it feels like a really amateur <laughs> kids having fun in the studio type of effort. This continues in The Scarecrow. I think he's written a very, very kids-in-the-field type of song here again. Yeah, it's positive imagery, isn't it? Yeah. And again, I guess this is part of your theme about he just wants to be outside playing in a field. Do you know what? This one, I didn't really tune into the lyrics much. I just, I did find myself enjoying the harmonies between the vocal two vocalists. But it just, I just, I was just listening to the music and listening to the the, the sounds of the the voices together. I didn't really read into the lyrics too much, to be no. honest. And I don't love this song. 
I think, again, it goes to the really creepy nursery rhyme element. And, and I mean, God, scarecrows are creepy. But the song does grab me with its innovative use of wood blocks. I mean, it's oddly ominous for being a predominantly woodblock jam. <laughs> and again, I think it's it's the really unusual, the really unusual melodies that he he kind of uses. Woodblocks are so often used as um, a sound for bones and skeletons, so I wouldn't be surprised in your in your subconscious you're you're linking it to that. I was going to say, yeah, how many wood hey, woodchop woodchop. How many how many woodblock jams you've been listening to? I mean, I've got my woodblock <laughs> compilation album, Block Rock '68. <laughs> so, yeah, Scarecrow, kind of creepy. I need more woodblocks in my life. And then we come to Bike, and I think this is the only part of the album where I'm like this had to be at the end because mm. it has the I'll say uh, you know Her Majesty on Abbey Road, just this like really weird little ending fragment because the actual part of bike is only a minute and a half and then there's a soundscape freak out but in many ways it encapsulates the the lyrical themes on the album in so much as (laughs) there's a bike there's a mouse what's the name of the mouse again uh gerald gerald i like the line you're the kind of girl that really fits into my world i think it's not too often you hear like typical kind of love song themes with pink floyd but yeah like i think that's like a like a really nice line, I think, you know, typical love song line. But I like that sentiment that fits in with my world. Like, it's not like you're glorifying someone, you're not pedestaling someone. You're saying this person's right for me. And I think that's just like a really nice line, nice way of saying that. And I think it's the only time he got personal, to my knowledge. Like, it's actually the first time and only time, really, that he sings to someone who's on Earth. Because I actually can't think of any other times where he really does this, except for the very last time, which we'll talk about, but go on. But again, it's, despite that, it's another example where these sort of sentiments, like, they only kind of appeal to this sort of tweed kind of Englishy yeah. vibe thing. And then you take that to a different audience and is it ever going to land? You know, is this ever going to be a long-term band with that sort of narrative? As in the narrative being... Too much narrative, you know what I mean? It's it's like, you know, there's there's not enough of that sort of simple... Yeah, no, and I was going to say, and I think that's something that this era of Pink Floyd absolutely lacks, is that they never sang a song to someone. They're singing about mm. all this other stuff. And, and it feels, maybe, subconsciously, like they're avoiding the real conversation, if that's what you want to call it. As in, I could imagine for a record-buying public, you know, like Somebody to Love, also from 1967... Think about the, you know that American right to the heart of the matter, straight to your face. I'm just going to sing you this song. I think this. We're out in the woods. We're with a scarecrow. We're with a gnome. Like I think you feel like we're avoiding the real conversation. Now I like it because this is delightful, fantastical escapism in its way. But I could see how this would miss the mark. But it's a very pleasing song, and it's very fun. And again, I think this ends the album on a great, lighthearted way that, again, just m- makes me delighted to have been along for the journey. So we, we take a darker edge now, unfortunately. They finish this album, and it becomes a, a hit. And they tour, and Sid Barrett is not doing so well. 
But they come back together and they go into the studio again with Norman Smith to work on their second album, Sauce Full of Secrets. And during this album, Sid will only complete one song, and that's the final song, Jug Band Blues. Sid has this one last song in Pink Floyd's discography. And it's unsettling because it's the only time, and it feels like there was this one break in the clouds, and you don't know if he was singing about himself or to the others, or if he's just saying words like, we'll never know. And it feels like it was perfectly written to be endlessly, endlessly parsed. But my God, it's a good song, and it gives me absolute chills. Mm. Yeah, I think he's he's definitely, you know, this is the first time he's addressing what's going on, basically. And I think that what a poignant, what a poignant end, you know. Because he'll he will actually record two other um, albums after this solo albums, and they're just again about little stories. It feels really interesting, and it's almost like this yell from the void. I can't think of another song that's like this, where someone came back from somewhere to like relay this news about this is the state I'm in. And I'm sure like music is a pretty broad world. I'm sure someone must have done something like this, but I can't think of what it is, and certainly not many that have affected me like this. But Sid came back just this one last time on this album just to say, hey, I'm not doing so hot, or have you forgotten about me? How dare you? Like, I don't know exactly what the point of this is, but it feels like he's at least addressing around the subject. But then the flip side is, by all accounts, I'm not sure how well he was doing. Like, it doesn't sound like he was particularly responsive or anything. There is footage of them playing this on Top of the Pops. So for other listeners, Top of the Pops was a television program in which... Basically, British bands would mime their pop hits. And unfortunately, this was a hit, and Sid just sits there staring. Like, it's brutal. Like, And he's just sitting there like he's completely, completely out of it. So I don't know. I don't know how, like, what he was like in the studio with this. But man, it's a haunting song. That's really sad, isn't it? Well, there's there's this one story with um, Waters about Sid's final... Not his final time he was in the studio, but the he comes in and uh, he says to Waters, oh, I've made this new song. And Waters is like, oh, finally, great. Some new content, right, let's go. Teach me it, teach me it. And he sits down with his guitar and uh, Sid's teaching him the song. And he, and he plays the song and he's like, have you got it yet? And he's like, oh, no, it's too, it's too hard. Do it, play it again, play it again, play it again. And it keeps going over and over and over again. And it, at the end of the song... Sid keeps going, have you got it yet? But after each time he repeats the song, he changes it. Finally, Waters just goes, ah, uh, yeah, okay, I get it. I think I got it. And it just gets up and leaves. Just Sid playing one final yep. horrible trick. No, and I was going to say, I honestly don't know what the state of Sid would have been in the studio. Like, I, I imagine he could have been quite obstinate as they would have perceived it like playing these these little these little gags for his own amusement and i guess it must have just been like outrageously frustrating for everyone as we're trying to be a, a popular band and we're trying to record this gd album that must have absolutely driven everyone like over the edge there so yeah and that, and that that was it for sid with pink floyd who can possibly know what's going on in someone's mind you know it's you know it must have been a scary thing to go through um and like what a disappointment for for those around him, you know, who wanted, you know, the, the, this was the guy that they were like, 
he was their front man, you know, it must have been it must have been such a disappointing experience to have to live with that, you know, and to have to pick up the mantle must have been really scary. But they did, you know, and they kept going and they became super successful. So like it's an amazing story. It's an amazing story. And I think it's got the 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 love and loss. And then I will say to end this part of it on a really high note, I think he left a very positive and fun album. Yeah. Like just overflowing with with creativity and wackiness. And and I I feel joy listening to it. Like it's it's uh it's not that clouded for me. It's it's certainly the most upbeat Pink Floyd album ever. <laughs> which is quite which is quite funny considering yeah. considering it, you know. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. It's, it contains the best gnome song I've ever heard. <laughs> So there you have it. That was Piper at the Gates of Dawn. I have been your host, Ian Prize, and this has been a sort of young person's guide to prog rock. Do find us over at progfrogpod at Instagram. And if you have any longer thoughts, opinions, or queries, we are at helloprogfrog at gmail.com. I want to thank my guests, Rufus and Ed. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. This album set Pink Floyd up on their career. Piper at the Gates of Dawn was a success, but unfortunately this was all not to last. As we've talked about, Sid's mental health declined rapidly after this album, and he left Pink Floyd and music in general shortly after. So Piper would stand as an album basically from a different band, but Pink Floyd would persevere, recruiting David Gilmour and embarking on a journey of psychedelic noodling and extended jamming. However, we will return to them later when they come out of the psychedelic wilderness and start preparing for their string of classic albums with 1971's Metal. But next week, perhaps deciding psychedelic music was much too fun, a young guitarist crammed as much jazz, moog, and mellotron as he could into 45 minutes, and thus progressive rock was born. Join us next time for King Crimson's In the Court of the Crimson King. Basically creating a creating a god damn you can do this man you can do it right, here we go. i believe in you all right it's going here we go <laughs>